Welcome to yet another Law Gospel Devotional. I'm Pastor Eric Sorensen, pastor at Hillside Church in Roxbury, New Jersey, as well as contributor uh, to 1517 in all sorts of ways. And I uh, also work for the organization in their relations and development department. Good to be here with you again to look at God's two words found throughout all of the scriptures, both his law and gospel. This week, we're going to be looking at Psalm 51 that is part of the lectionary texts for well, a special service this week that we'll talk about in just a little bit, and boy, do we have a doozy for you today. I mean, there's nothing quite like Psalm 51 in all of the scriptures, and so without further ado, let me go ahead and uh, bring that up so that we can dive into it. Now, as always, the first thing I like to do when we're looking at a passage of scripture is I want to go into the background and the setting. Uh, and of course, uh, the special service going on this week in many churches is Ash Wednesday. That's just a day from when this, uh, this is being released. And frankly, it's pretty darn hard to believe that we're already at Ash Wednesday. Uh, I suppose in the time we're living in, all time seems kind of hard to believe that it's coming to pass when it does. I don't know if you feel that way, but it certainly has felt like that. To me, And of course, Ash Wednesday is a special day in the church calendar. It begins the season of Lent, a period of 40 days, if you exclude the Sundays involved in all of it, before Easter, emphasizing, of course, repentance. And repentance literally just means to turn around, to change course. Um, it really, it, and we should think about it in terms of turning from our sin to something, and that's something being Christ. So not just something, but someone. And we'll talk more about that later, especially as we dig into this psalm. Now, uh, perhaps nowhere in Scripture do we see what repentance or what turning around actually sounds like more than in Psalm 51. It is abundantly clear that that's what this psalm depicts for us. But before we dive into the psalm, we, we simply have to talk about the events, events leading up to its writing. Because the fact is, in the very introduction to the psalm, this isn't always the case. In fact, it's not the case most of the time. The author of the psalm wanted us to know that it was written in response to a particular event. And that event was the prophet Nathan confronting David. Now, what's going on in that situation? Well, you have to go to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12 to see what's going on there. And I would imagine that most of you watching this are pretty familiar with the story. It's all about David and Bathsheba. Let me summarize it for you real briefly. David sees Bathsheba bathing. David, because he's king and is extraordinarily powerful, demands to basically have Bathsheba for himself. Bathsheba ends up coming over to David's house, sleeping with him, and she ends up pregnant. Well, David can't have that known in the public, and so to cover up his sin of taking Bathsheba to be his own and impregnating this married woman, ends up figuring out a cunning way of having her husband Uriah slain on the battlefield. And then he takes Bathsheba to be his wife, and is indeed going to be the father of the child they have produced together. And so, of course, the story is just disgusting. I mean, it's gross. It is, you know, it shows you the links that we are prone to going to when we're ensnared by our temptations and ensnared by sin. And David, having all the power in the world at the time, 
has it just that much easier. And so it looks like he's going to get away with it. I mean, it really does. By the end of chapter 11, it seems like, well, David's the king and he can do things that other people can't. That's what happens when you're in power. And yet there is a hint, there is a hint at the end of chapter 11 that it might not go David's way because we're told the Lord was greatly displeased with what David had done. So now you enter into chapter 12 in which we see that God is faithful to not let us get away with it. And I say that purposely. God is faithful to not let us get away with it. It is, in fact, a, an act of, of his goodness to us that he will rise people up, lift people up to confront us. And so God will send his prophet Nathan to confront the mighty King David, but he doesn't confront him by merely quoting the law. Nathan is very wise. He's shrewd as a serpent, to use the phrase that Jesus would use. And so instead, he confronts this mighty King David with a story. Here's what he says. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a, a daughter to him. Now there, there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now you can clearly see that what is being uh, shared with David is a great injustice. It is the rich robbing the poor. It is the powerful taking advantage of the weak. And David, David really does see himself as a man of righteousness, as a man of justice, even though he has committed this great sin with Bathsheba. Nevertheless, he still is very much aware that he is a man after God's own heart. And he reflects that in his righteous indignation. He says, verse, or we read verse 5, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, he makes an oath, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Oh, David is so filled with righteous anger on behalf of, of this supposed poor man that has been robbed by the rich. And yet it is right at that moment that Nathan then points to David and says, you are the man. And David instantly recognizes the point of the story. Subconsciously, David knew what he had done with Bathsheba. And Uriah. David knew he was guilty. David was covering it up, but you can't keep it covered up forever. And so the law is doing its work. Now again, Nathan doesn't bring the law in the typical way or in a way that we might expect, but by telling that story, he brings to the surface this thing that David would rather keep hidden. That's what the law does. Whether it be told in story form or whether it be pronounced to us in a command, the law works to expose so that we cannot keep which we, that which we'd rather keep hidden. 
And so what happens when the law has done its work is it crushes us. It, it, it exposes us and then it crushes us for the reality of the weight of our sin. The good Dr. Luther put it like this. This is the primary purpose of the law of Moses, that through it sin might grow and be multiplied, especially in the conscience. Paul, discussing this magnificently in Romans 7, therefore discusses this magnificently in Romans 7. Therefore, the true function and the chief and proper use of the law is to reveal to man his sin, his blindness, misery, wickedness, ignorance, hate, and contempt of God, death, hell, judgment, and the well-deserved wrath of God. Hence, this use of the law is extremely beneficial and very necessary. For if someone is not a murderer, adulterer, or thief, which, by the way, David indeed was all of those things in this story. But nevertheless, if someone isn't those things, Luther points out that, uh, well, they'll act like the Pharisee. They'll act like the Pharisee recorded for us in Luke chapter 18, who Luther says would swear, being possessed by the devil, that he is a righteous man. Therefore, he develops the presumption of righteousness and relies on his good works. God cannot soften and humble this man or make him acknowledge the misery, his misery and damnation any other way than by the law. Therefore, the proper and absolute use of the law is to terrify with lightning, as on Mount Sinai, thunder, and the blare of the trumpet, with a thunderbolt to burn and crush that brute which is called the presumption of righteousness. Indeed, Nathan's story has done this to David. It has crushed him. It has revealed his problem. And so we come to Psalm 51, and the very first words of that psalm in response to Nathan's rebuke is, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. The great King David, the mighty King David, is relegated to desperation, to, to nothing but a plea for mercy from the throne of God, to, for God to deal with him according to his steadfast, his committed love, even if he knows he's unworthy of such love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, erase them, get rid of them, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David continues, against you and you only have I sinned. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Have you ever felt like that before? Just so weighed down by something you've done or said or thought that you just felt like you couldn't escape from it? That's the way David feels right now. He can't get away from it. And he says in verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, of course, when we hear that at first, there's a part of us that goes, well, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> okay, yes, you sinned against God, but you certainly sinned against Bathsheba, against Uriah, against the nation you were charged to lead. I mean, you kind of sinned against everybody you know, buddy, because of the, the nature of your position as king of Israel. And yet here's what it means. Ultimately, all of our sin is really in the final analysis, against God. All sin is ultimately an offense against God because it is God who has given us the word of his law that tells us what we ought, ought to do and what we should not do. David goes even further. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. I mean, David has no words of hope here. 
he's just recognizing that he has been a mess since even before he was conscious enough to do anything about it. And the same is true for all humanity, of course, that all of us, ever since our first parents sinned in the garden, have been born in iniquity, been born sinners. So David says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. The truth that David is confessing here, he's not holding anything back. This is what repentance sounds like. It's just a brutal acknowledgement of the facts. I have sinned. There are no excuses. There are no justifications. There are no understatements. There is no minimization. There is only the cold, hard reality of his sin. He continues, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Now, what in the world does that mean? My bet is a lot of you have read through this psalm before, Psalm 51, and most of it is pretty clear to understand, and so you go with that and you understand the purpose. But when you get to purge me with hyssop, you may have not really thought about it or just skipped over it. But there is a purpose to it. If we look back to Exodus chapter 12, if we look back to some of the Levitical laws, like in Leviticus 14 or Numbers 19, we're going to see that hyssop is instrumental in the sacrificial system. In Exodus 12, hyssop is what uh, is dipped into the blood that will be put on the doorways so that people will be saved from the angel of death on the night of the Passover. Hyssop is used to sprinkle blood in the sacrifices so that people would be forgiven or that they would be determined clean from leprosy. The point is, when David is thinking about hyssop, he's thinking about something that leads to a declaration of forgiveness. Purge me with hyssop. Sprinkle me with that which I need to be declared clean in your presence, God. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Lots of baptismal imagery here, folks. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Now, I don't think David's bones were literally broken, but you'll see him in other passages like in Psalm 25 and others where David will talk about being so burdened by a sin that it feels like his bones are breaking, that, that he doesn't have any strength left. That's the idea. Hide your face from my sins. And again, he says, blot out all my iniquities. Please get rid of them. Somehow pretend or, or somehow exist, God, as if this has never happened. Take it away from me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David is pleading with everything in his being. Now, I, incidentally, I think when David says, take not your Holy Spirit from me, I think he genuinely feels that. Remember, the Psalms are, are written as real people write, with real emotions. And I think David actually does fear that maybe he's gone so far that God is going to leave him, that God is going to abandon him. And so David continues, then I will teach transgressors your way. If you forgive me, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. I'll be an evangelist for you, God. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare 
your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Of course, you know, the reality is someone can show up to the temple and not be broken and contrite at all, and yet offer the, the right sacrifice and think that they're good to go, that they're indeed fine. David says, no, 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 it's what's behind that. It's a brokenness, it's a contriteness, it's a recognition of how far I've fallen. Every time I come to verses like this, I can't help but think of AA meetings where people that gather together, the very first thing they say, the very first thing they acknowledge is in fact their brokenness and their contrition. And that is the beginning to healing. That is the path to restoration. So David clearly exemplifies for us what it sounds like to, the, to repent. But we still have a question because you will notice in this psalm, there is no declaration of forgiven actually given. There is no word of absolution in Psalm 51. There is only a plea for absolution in Psalm 51. And so if we were just reading that, we might ask, did God answer his prayer? Well, to get the answer to that, we need to go back to 2 Samuel chapter 12. As David can only respond to Nathan with the words, I have sinned against the Lord, Nathan immediately responds to that declaration from David that admission, that confession, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. That is the absolution. The absolution sounds like you are forgiven. That's it. You are forgiven. It's an amazing moment where Nathan becomes the mouthpiece, mouthpiece through which God delivers the goods. God delivers absolution to David. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Indeed, what does 1 John tell us in chapter 2? That if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to purify us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to forgive us from all. Let me emphasize that word, all unrighteousness, every single time. No, I will not take my spirit away from you, David. I will declare you to be a forgiven man. I will blot out your transgressions. I will have mercy on you. I will wash you white as snow. And the good news for you and I today is that same declaration is given to us. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, the one who has taken upon himself our sin, we, as we come acknowledging our failures and our sins, are declared to have our sin put away and also declared to be righteous in the sight of God. And that is why it's so important to hear God's two words, because that's what they do. They kill and they make alive. They condemn and they forgive. They expose, but they blot out. And each of us 
every single day need that reality presented to us because each of us every single day falls short of the glory of God. But because Jesus has not and never will, we can be confident that when the declaration of forgiveness is given to us, that it is in fact true. So, I can say to you today, who acknowledge your sin before a holy God, you are forgiven on account of Christ alone. That's our Law Gospel devotional today. I hope that you've been blessed by it and that you have a great rest of the week and a wonderful uh, repentant Ash Wednesday and a glorious season of Lent. God's richest blessings to you. We will see you next week.